Well, good morning, Christ Church. <laughs> if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Charlie Browning. I'm one of the pastors here on our staff team, and, and, and we're just so glad you're here. Uh, whether you're part of our church online this morning or whether you're part of our church at one of our two campuses, uh, we are really glad that you are. It, like was just mentioned, we're, we're moving through today as part of our sermon series, Book of Kings. And, and today we'll be taking a look at at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. And so if you've, if you've got your Bible on your phone and you want to pull that out, or, or if you have a real physical Bible in front of you uh, and you want to pull that out, I'd invite you to do so. The words will be on the screen as well if you want to follow along. But, but as we prepare to open God's word this morning, uh, I, I want to invite you to join me in just coming before him for a word of prayer. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're good and you're in our midst today. We do not take that for granted. And God, we pray that we would be open to what you have to say to us. We'd be open to how you want to move in our lives this morning. God, would you allow us to receive what you have for us? Would you speak to us in a way that provides us exactly what we need? God, thank you that you're here with us wherever we find ourselves right now. Amen. Amen. It wasn't that long ago that I found myself having one of those nights. Uh, I was was laying on my bed, staring at the ceiling for hour upon hour upon hour, and I just could not go to sleep because I couldn't stop thinking. I could not stop thinking. I couldn't stop thinking about the criticism I'd received that day. I couldn't stop thinking uh, about the financial things that we were wrestling through at that point. I couldn't stop thinking about this family issue that kept getting worse and worse and seemed to have no hope of getting any better. I couldn't stop thinking about all the yard work or the house projects that I'd promised other people and myself that I was going to do that I hadn't even come close to getting started on. I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about all the text messages and emails that I left unresponded and how shameful I felt that I hadn't gone back to the people who had reached out to me. I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that my favorite football team just kind of stinks right now. I couldn't stop thinking. I could not stop thinking. And and as each thought came into my head, they piled on on top of one another, one after one after one, until until the entire pile was so burdensome, was so overwhelming, that I remember laying there, and I remember my my chest getting a little bit tighter and tighter, and I remember it getting harder and harder for me to breathe. And, And at some point, I remember just crying out to God and saying, God, would you please just let me go to sleep? I hate this feeling. I have had enough. The next thing I remember, I was waking up the following morning. And as I woke up, I distinctly recall the very first thought that came into my head. I thought, do people with real faith ever feel like I just did? Do people with real faith ever feel like that? It's one of the questions that our text wrestles with this morning as we open up in verse 1 of 1 Kings 19. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. If you remember back 
to last week with Dan's message, or if you just flip one page back in your Bible to 1 Kings 18, you'll see that there's been an incredibly climactic moment that just happened in the book of Kings. Uh, Elijah has challenged 450 prophets of Baal and in one of those tests. He says, who's the real God? And so the, everybody, the prophets of Baal and Elijah built altars to their God and Baal doesn't show up, but Yahweh does. And, and, and God shows up. He lights the altar on fire. It's this massive display of his power and splendor and majesty. It's one of those, as Dan said, mic drop moments that we see. And then all of Israel looks around and says, oh, that is really God. And then Elijah concludes this episode by rounding up all 450 prophets of Baal and having them slaughtered. And so Ahab, the king at the time, goes and tells Jezebel, his wife. And Jezebel is one of those people that you don't really want to mess with. It says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of those dead prophets. She chanters her inner Liam Neeson and says, Elijah, I'm coming for you. And you'll be lucky if you make it another 24 hours alive. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He he came to Beersheba in Judah where he left his servant there while he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Do people with real faith ever feel like I did that night? I mean, do they ever get that discouraged? Elijah did. Yep, that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in our entire biblical text, the one who appears at Christ's transfiguration, the one who stands up to King Ahab when nobody else would, the one who calls upon God to perform some of the most miraculous feats that we see in the entire scriptures, that Elijah, that same one, now finds himself running away, hiding under a bush, praying that he might die. If you flip between chapter 18 and chapter 19, you see that he goes from mountaintop to valley just like that. Five verses. I mean, how does this happen? How does someone like Elijah, uh, someone who has just displayed so much faith in God, so much confidence in who God has called him to be and what he's called him to do, how does he end up running away and hiding under a bush, praying that God would just go ahead and get it all over with? How, How can someone like that go from such confidence to such discouragement so quickly? 
It's a really valid question that, that deserves an entire sermon in itself and one that we don't have time to dive into the details to if you want any interest in eating lunch before like 3 p.m. today. But I think we can conclude this. I think given our text today, we can conclude this, that, that this is a singular fundamental fact of life on this earth. It's that facing discouragement, it's just part of our human reality. Facing discouragement, it's just part of our human reality. It's kind of sometimes what it means to be human, is to end up in these type of situations, like Elijah. You see, in that moment, he was convinced that he had completely failed. He was convinced that God had absolutely made a mistake in putting him in the situations that he put him in. And he was convinced that there was no way it was going to get better. That's where Elijah found himself. Like I shared with you earlier, I've had one of those nights too. Uh, Frankly, I've had more than one of those nights. Have you? Has discouragement ever had that kind of grip on you? Or or does it have that kind of grip on you right now? Pastor Sharon Hody Miller commented recently that, that she suspects that some of the widespread exhaustion, or I'll say some of the widespread discouragement that we are feeling today is a result of returning to our pre-pandemic pace of life without our pre-pandemic emotional reserves. In other words, what she's saying is, it's really easy to be discouraged right now. I mean, it's just natural that living in the world that we live in at the time that we live in it's going to be really natural for us to fall into that kind of season. That's just going to happen. You see, I think there are plenty of reasons in today's world that, that you could experience that type of discouragement. Uh, I, there's a myriad, a, a, a laundry list of things that could lead to you and I finding ourselves in that same feeling that Elijah did. Uh, maybe it's because work's just not going well. Maybe you feel like your, your relationship with your spouse has kind of fallen off a cliff. Maybe you feel like you're failing as a parent. Maybe you feel like you're so exhausted and you have no idea when in the context of a normal week you're ever supposed to find time to sleep. Maybe you come to church every single week or at least most weeks and yet sometimes you look around and you think, nobody here really knows me. Maybe you've taken a survey of all the injustices that are going on in the world and you keep thinking to yourself, none of this is ever getting any better. It just seems like it only gets worse. Or maybe your favorite football team stinks. I don't know what it is for you. But I know that we've all been there. If you've lived a little bit of life, then you've been there. And the, and the likely reality of being a human being on this world is that we're probably going to be there again. And some of us 
we're there right now. Because you see, experiencing life in this broken world, part of it means that we're going to run into seasons of discouragement. It's just part of our reality, and it's normal. Even Elijah experienced it. It's normal. And so given that reality, given the reality of the discouragement of our life today that we can so often lead to that, the, the question that I'm most interested in exploring with you this morning and the question that I think our text is most interested in answering this morning is just this. So what does God do about it? What does God do when we're discouraged? If the first portion of our text spends some time explaining how Elijah experiences discouragement and sheds light on how we do so as well, then the rest of our text spends time answering what God does about it. It says this, starting in verse 5. It says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? How does God respond when we're discouraged? The exact opposite way of how I would. <laughs> I, if I was God and I was in a situation with Elijah, I would be so frustrated. My response to Elijah would be something like this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, do you not remember what just happened? I, I literally gave you proof. I, you're, I, I had your back. I showed up exactly when you needed. I proved that I was real, that I'm reliable, that I am God. Do you, do you remember that? I, I mean, what more could you possibly want? I thank God all the time that I'm not God. But the truth holds still that God could have reacted like that if he wanted to. He would have been incredibly justified in reacting in exactly that way to Elijah. But he doesn't. He doesn't because that's not who our God is. That is not who our God is. He, he's not shaming he doesn't lash out. He's not easily frustrated. No, instead, in the midst of our discouragement, what does God do? He does the exact opposite of what I would do. He cares so well for us. He wraps his arms around us in care. He sends an angel to Elijah when he's experiencing this season. An angel that tends to Elijah like a, like a sick par or a parent might tend to a sick child. Uh, the angel comes up to Elijah as he's sleeping and just kind of 
I can imagine, gently nudges him. Hey, hey, buddy, you okay? I brought some fresh bread and some fresh water for you. Eat up. I, I really think it would help. Uh, okay, I'm going to let you sleep a little more, okay? Yeah, and then he steps back. And then he comes again. Hey, hey, buddy. Yeah, still me. I'm right here for you. You need anything? Brought you some more bread and some more water. God cares for Elijah like that. He wraps his arms around Elijah like that. He makes sure he has whatever, everything that he needs. He makes sure he has food. He makes sure he has water. He makes sure he has the rest that he needs. What God doesn't do is come up to Elijah and give him a pep talk, tell him to get his mind right and get right back out there. No. He knows that in these seasons of discouragement, what Elijah needs is for God to care for him by wrapping his arms all the way around him. And he does so by caring for him holistically. I mean, God, you see him, he meets Elijah's spirit, uh, physical needs. He meets his, Elijah's spiritual needs. He meets Elijah's emotional needs. He knows that he needs that type of care from him. And God gives it to him. That's how God cares for us in the midst of those seasons when we need that type of care. And then he concludes with this question. He asks Elijah, he says, what are you doing here? You know, you read the text and you see that Elijah makes his way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. And and, and the assumption would be, well, okay, he's going where he's supposed to go. God didn't say to go there. So God says, what are you doing here? It's one one of those rhetorical questions that God asks sometimes in the scriptures. A rhetorical question similar to the one that he asked Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 when they've just eaten the fruit that God asked them not to eat. And then they're hiding and God asks them, where are you? I don't know if God's ever asked you one of those types of questions. The questions that he already knows the answer to. I mean, he knew that Elijah was now completely out of step with his commands. Elijah had been following what God wanted, and then there was a point where something happened, and Elijah starts going this way, and what God wanted was that way. You know, God knows that Elijah is no longer following his instructions. He's no longer following his commands. And yet, this text tells us that Elijah's inability to follow God's commands has no bearing on how much God cares for him. None. God cares for him so well when he follows his commands. And you know what? He cares for him so well when he doesn't. He's still so tender with him. He's still so adamant about meeting every need that he has. He's still right there with him every step of the way. That's how God cares for us. The same way that he cares for Elijah in the midst of our discouragement. The text continues on in verse 10 as Elijah actually answers God's question. He answers a seemingly rhetorical question. He replies, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He sort of, he's like, hear me out. The, the, the Israelites, though, they've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, a familiar question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers with a familiar reply. I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've put their prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me too. I can only imagine the trembling anticipation that Elijah felt as the voice of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord tells him, the Lord is about to pass by. You're about to experience and hear from God. And, and then a massive wind comes and tears apart the rocks in the mountain. And Elijah's probably thinking, wow, God. But God was not in that. And then the ground begins to shake with this earthquake. And Elijah's probably thinking, okay, this has got to be him. God was not in that. And then a fire burns ablaze all around him. And he has to think, okay, seriously, this one, that's got to be you. But God was not in that. And then it all simmers down until it's still and quiet. And that's when Elijah hears the voice of God. In the stillness, in the quiet, through a gentle whisper. You see, what does God do when we're in a season like Elijah? What does he do when we're experiencing discouragement? God speaks to us. He wants to talk to you and me. He wants to speak to us. He, he wants to encourage us. He wants to give us direction. He wants to ask those important questions. Sometimes those necessary questions. God, he wants to speak to us. But God doesn't speak to us through the wind or the earthquake or the fire. No, he speaks to us in the gentle whisper, in the stillness, in the quiet. And so it strikes me then, if we have an interest in hearing from God, if we have an interest in seeing what he's saying to us today, then we're not just going to naturally, accidentally stumble into hearing from him. I mean, we live in one of these really chaotic and really loud worlds. I don't know if 
your life's anything like mine, but uh, not very often do I look around and think, golly, you know, it is just so quiet and still around here. Like there's really nothing going on, nothing going through my mind. It's just, just quietness. I don't have that experience. I don't know about you. And so if we're going to hear what God is saying to us, then, then we're going to actually have to be intentional about listening for it. Because we're not, we don't live in a world where it's just going to be easy to accidentally run into what he's saying. No, we're going to have to navigate through the winds and the earthquakes and the fires of our cultural day in order to actually arrive at what it is that God is saying to us in the midst of the stillness and the quiet through his gentle whisper. And I know for a fact, the text tells us for a fact that he has something to say to you and to me, especially in our times of discouragement. The question is just, are we listening for it? Are we making space to listen for it? Our text concludes this way in verse 15. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Then see if you can follow this. And he says, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. In verse 18, he concludes, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to him, to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. What's God saying to Elijah? He's reinforcing the fact that God is never done being God. He's never done being God. Elijah had concluded that he was. In what I would call Elijah's passionate pity party. He looks up at God and he says, God, we're in trouble here. I'm all alone. Everything else is in ruins. It's time to throw in the towel. We got to give up. But God is never done being God. And so he just gently and softly and a smile shakes his head and he says, oh, no, no, no. You're going back out there. I'm not done yet, he says, and I am certainly not done using you yet. And then in a sense, he recommissions him back into the purposes and the calling at which God had put on his life. And then when he recommissions him, he sends him out And he sends him out with instructions. He tells him where to go. He tells him who to anoint. And then he tells him actually what's going to happen. This is going to happen next. And then that's going to happen. And then that's going to happen. He says, I've got a plan. Here's what comes next. I am not done being God. Because God's never done being God. So what does God do? When we're discouraged, when we experience those type of seasons, he reassures us. 
he reassures us that he has a plan, that it's a good plan, and that it's still in motion. You see, Elijah didn't have context for this plan. He couldn't see the things that God could see. Elijah had no context for the fact that his continuation of the line of the prophets of Israel was eventually going to lead to Jesus Christ, our ultimate prophet. He had no context for the fact that his resistance of the kingdoms of this world was eventually going to be fulfilled by the coming of Jesus who brings God's kingdom into this world fully. And he didn't have a context for the fact that his prophetic words about the good news of the God of Israel would eventually make their way to the ends of the earth thanks to the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Elijah didn't have context for this larger story. But God did. God always does. And that's how he reassures us. In the midst of those times of discouragement, he reassures us that he's gone before us, that the future is secure in him. He knows exactly what he's doing, that he's not done being God, that there is a plan. And then he finishes his conversation with Elijah in verse 18 with with the exclamation point. He, he finishes, uh, Elijah in verse 10 and 14 has, has twice cried out in that passionate pity party, God, I, I'm the only one left. You've left me alone. God just smiles and looks back at him. And in verse 18, he says, no, 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 no. There's 7,000 more just like you. He reassures us in the midst of those times, in the midst of those seasons, that he will never leave us alone. He never has, and he never will. God will never leave you alone. You see, the world does well, and it always has, to convince us that God has left us alone. It is such a lie. God is saying that is such a lie. He will never leave us alone. And in the moments that we feel like we are being left alone are exactly the moments like in the story that God is raising up so many others around us, just like us, to the tune of hundreds, to the tune of thousands, maybe even 7,000. God is adamant to Elijah that he is not alone and he's adamant to us today. He wants to reassure us in those times of discouragement that we are not alone. So what does God do when we're discouraged? He cares for us. He speaks to us and he reassures us. Praise God for that good news, friends. That's a God worthy of all of our worship. Will you pray with me? 
Lord, we thank you for who you are, how you meet us so clearly in the midst of our discouragement. God, thank you that you care for us, that you speak to us, that you reassure us, that you want us to know that you have a plan and we are never left alone. We pray that this would resonate to be true in our hearts and minds today. And as we respond in worship, we pray that we would want to do nothing else other than speak your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.